Hello, and happy new year from Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Carissa Nitschi. And we're so glad you can join us. Brussels Sprouts is kicking off a new year series where we're taking stock of and laying out expectations for the key issues in the transatlantic relationship heading into 2023. We're going to delve into how the transatlantic relationship is likely to fare in the coming year, what we should expect in Ukraine, uh, and assess the state of democracy as we head into the new year, among other topics. Today, we're starting this New Year series with a look at Europe-China relations, undoubtedly one of the key issues as we head into the new year. Of course, 2022 brought a number of developments in Europe-China relations. I think it's fair to say that in 2022, relations between Europe and China grew more tense. The EU strategic com- compass, for example, agreed in March of 2022 um, a, the, and noted China's increasingly assertive behavior. There was the EU-China summit in April uh, when High Representative Joseph Borrell uh, labeled it a dialogue of the deaf. And so um, with more critical European views of China, we saw continued convergence between the United States and Europe on this issue. Uh, And yet there are still areas where the United States and Europe have different approaches to Beijing. European governments don't fully agree whether they want to align closely with the U.S. or if they want to stake out a middle ground. Uh, This seems to be the view, the latter, of President Macron as well as German Chancellor Schultz. And certainly the United States' imposition of export controls on semiconductors to China remains another area of contention. So to help us understand what we should expect in terms of Europe's relationship with China in 2023, we're very happy to welcome Noah Barkin and Miko Hutari to the podcast. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Um, Very quickly, Noah is a managing editor with Rhodium Group's China Practice and a senior visiting fellow in the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund. And Miko is the executive director of Merix. His research focuses on China's foreign policy, China-Europe relations, and global economic governance and competition. Okay, so um, we want to look forward, um, but before we talk about the present and look ahead at what we should expect, um, I want to ask you to reflect on the past. And so maybe just very quickly, both of you could weigh in on how you would describe 2022 in terms of Europe's relationship with China, um, what stood out, both the good and the bad. And Noah, maybe we can start with you. Sure. Uh, Well, I think you said it in your introduction, Andrea, that uh, uh, we've uh, gone through a period, I would say, of a number of years now uh, where the relationship has been uh, deteriorating. uh, for a number of reasons, you can you can point to uh, the, the sort of aggressive diplomacy that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic from China, the disinformation. Uh, we can look at um, the coercion against Lithuania. We can look at Hong Kong. Uh, there's a long list. I, I think the uh, the big uh, shift uh, in 2022 was really the war in Ukraine and. Uh, and China's uh, strategic partnership with uh, with Russia uh, and its support for for Russian narratives uh, around the war in Ukraine, uh, and I think that we since uh, since the war started and and it became became clear that China uh, uh, was uh, going to be sticking with this with this uh, partnership with Russia. Um, I think we we entered a, a bit of a new phase uh, in the in the Europe China relationship, uh, 
so I, I think uh, we've been on a, a downward trajectory for a number of years, and 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 this uh, uh, Russia-China uh, alignment uh, has uh, has made things much more difficult, uh, and that has dominated the conversations over the past year between uh, between Europe and China. Miko, agree, disagree? Anything you want to add? Look, I agree. I think uh, Noah has pointed to the most important aspects of, of that relationship and its its dynamic. I, I find it important to highlight maybe that um, um, this overall trend of a deteriorating relationship has has counterpoints, right? So, I mean, there's clearly an, an attempt, maybe not dissimilar with uh, the U.S.-China relationship to to establish a floor. I don't know where this is going. Um, establish guardrails, if you wish. Um, go back and move away from that um, um, dialogue of the deaf. So establish channels again, clears the bubble of the internal conversation that is happening in China, make sure that uh, there's at least on a few key issues, including specifically China's relationship with Russia's war in Ukraine, that um, we have a vector of European conversations that at least some um, European leaders are convinced of. Can make a difference. Um, so um, I agree with um, with you, know about the general trend, but um, there is this attempt to secure, um, I think, a not a special relationship, but a different relationship that Europeans have with Beijing. To what extent that's successful or not, I think we'll, we'll be discussing in the coming minutes. Yeah, I want to pick up on the Russia-China piece, or, or sorry, the war in Ukraine piece of that, because I agree, Noah, obviously there's, you know, it, it's clear that China hasn't totally um, distanced itself from Russia, although I'm curious about how you think that relationship, the Russia-China relationship is being understood uh, in European capitals, because I think there's a debate here in Washington, and some people are convinced that they're um, you know, special relationship is just as close as it ever was, you know, even if if she's maybe um, reputationally trying to distance himself from Putin. But some people will point to the statement that Scholz or that Putin, uh, sorry, that she made um, after his meeting with Scholz about not using nuclear weapons to say, oh, look, the, you know, the Chinese are, are really um that relationship isn't as close as we thought. So I, I don't. If you if you could generalize, how do you think people are interpreting the Russia-China relationship in different European capitals? Well, I think it depends on which capital you're looking at, um, and it depends on which uh, part of each capital you're looking at. Uh, I think um, uh, there is uh, a sense that you mentioned Schultz's trip to Beijing and the. Uh, the statement that uh, uh, that Xi Jinping uh, made there for, um, uh, during Schultz's visit about opposing a, a nuclear escalation in uh, in Ukraine. So this was seen in, in by Schultz and his team as a as a, as a big victory. Uh, he he said publicly that uh, that that alone was uh, a reason for him to. Uh, go to uh, Beijing. He was criticized, of course, uh, for this for this visit for various reasons. Um, uh, so uh, I, I and we've also heard from Emmanuel Macron, the French president. Uh, uh, I think this was in Bali at the G20 uh, after his conversation with Xi that uh, he thought China could play some sort of mediating role 
uh, in the conflict. So I think in both Berlin and, and Paris, in the Chancellery, in the Elysee Palace, there is uh, a belief that uh, one must uh, do everything one can uh, to uh, uh, convince China to put pressure on Russia. Uh, there's a recognition that you know European leaders are not talking with Putin. If anyone has influence with him, it's it's Xi Jinping. Uh, and to play this card, um, uh, I don't think there's necessarily uh, a great deal of confidence that uh, uh, that she is actually going to put pressure on Putin. Uh, but I think the view is uh, one has to one has to try. Um, uh, I, I think uh, more fundamentally, if you if if you talk to people, I was just in Brussels uh, this week. Mika was also there. Um, if you talk to to people, there isn't a great deal of confidence that uh, uh, that uh, uh, the Europeans or anyone else are going to be able to drive a wedge between Russia and China. China and Russia are uh, are aligned and 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 have this partnership for geopolitical reasons and. Uh, so I don't think anyone is under the illusion that they're going to peel uh, China away from Russia. Uh, but the feeling in some capitals is you've got to do everything you can to uh, uh, to convince Xi to, to put pressure on Putin. Miko, um, we have seen a little bit of a change in tone um, from Beijing, especially with uh China's new ambassador to the EU. Um, I don't know if you would describe it as a charm offensive. I'm kind of, I'm curious to know how you would characterize that. But um, what do you think is driving that shift in tone, if you agree, from Beijing's perspective? And, um, you know, how how effective do you think that's likely to be? Well, first of all, I, I do agree. We, we've seen a, a wave of um, activity by Chinese diplomats um, Public private communication op eds uh, pieces in in Chinese media and international media that have made that point uh, about aligned interests between Europe and China and the need to you know maintain a good basis uh, to speak out against decoupling um, so I think there there is clearly evidence of what you've just described and as for the motivations in Beijing, I think um uh, there's a long-standing motivation which hasn't fundamentally changed, which is to um, make sure that the EU is as distanced as possible from the United States um, on, in principle. <laughs> and um, I think there's an element of maybe exploiting some of the tensions that have or are arising in the transatlantic relationship at the moment, and specifically, you know, making points about the IRA and issues related to that. Um, but then more deeply, um, at least at Merrick's I don't think we have seen China so much under pressure for a long time internally, um, and specifically with regard to economic development, um, their own long-term dependence on international technology, energy, and other issues. Um, so I think there's a realization that they're heading into difficult territory and cannot afford to lose Europe while they're losing maybe quite a few other critical advanced economies in terms of their technology and economic partnerships. And so I think it's that mix of factors that plays a role at the moment. And really, before, Krista, before you jump in, the second piece is um, 
how is that likely to go over with European capitals? I mean, is that going to be kind of a welcome shift? Um, is is that going to be an effective tactic? Or is the kind of growing skepticism that has mounted in many of these European capitals, you know, it, likely to prevail? Like, in other words, is the charm offensive going to meet significant resistance? Or is it going to be, you know, broadly received? Very interesting and important question. And I honestly don't know. Um, but my gut feeling is that the China will be capable enough to make sure that there's a lot of um, deep-rooted sentiment uh, that has now, I think, expressed itself over the past years to not make a fundamental difference um, uh, in terms of the assessment of where China is heading. At the same time, I think Brussels other places are actually quite, I wouldn't say desperate, but keen to go back to a more productive relationship with China. Um, and that's understandable, right? I mean, no one celebrates a dialogue of the death. There's no no need of having that again. Um, so um, it's contested how the next summit uh, shall be prepared and what is required for that. But in, both in Brussels, in Paris, in, in Berlin, I see a willingness to to at least use that charm offensive to to um, get our points across and uh, go back to a somewhat more normal mode of interactions with Beijing. Noah, go ahead and jump in there. Uh, I just wanted to say that uh, this is this is largely uh, a uh, rhetorical phenomenon at the, at the moment. There are no indications that China uh, is uh, changing anything uh, in terms of policies. We have heard sort of soothing messages to the to the Europeans on on Russia. I think in in private conversations, uh, Chinese officials have made very clear that they don't approve of this war, uh, that they were surprised by this war, uh, etc. Um, uh, and uh, uh, they've also uh, talked about opening up to foreign investment. Miko talked about the, the economic vulnerabilities that China has at the moment. Uh, so there is a desire to, to uh, uh, preserve uh, investment from European companies, to preserve access to the European market, et cetera, but nothing uh, concrete yet. Um, uh, I also think it's important to say that we're not going to head back to uh, the late teens. You know, it's not we're not heading back to business as usual. I think we're there is some uncertainty now. Uh, it, it, the picture is 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 rather confusing because China is opening up and, and, and engaging with the world again because of the tensions in the transatlantic relationship, uh, because Europe itself uh, is uh, you know, sitting here in, in, in Berlin, Germany is trying to figure out its own policy. There are some divisions within the government here. Um, so there are a lot of lot of uncertainties around this, but I, I, I think it's important to say that we're not going back to how we were in 2017, 18, 19. I want to pull on this thread about vulnerabilities that China is facing. Um, there's been a lot of discussion in the United States about outbound investment screening mechanisms. Um, we had a listener question come in on what has been China's response to these discussions. And then I'm going to add in another element here. How is that conversation about outbound investment screening proceeding in Europe right now? No, I don't know if you want to kick us off on that. Sure. Um, well, 
uh, Miko is probably watching uh, the response in China. I think my my only comment on on China's response to this is that, uh, um, well, first of all, we don't have an outbound screening regime right in the U.S. yet. We're expecting uh, maybe an executive order in the coming months, um, but nothing concrete has happened. I think China has has not reacted. Uh, uh, overtly to the U.S. export controls that were that were unveiled in in October. Uh, and that silence has been uh, rather surprising to some. I think uh, also in Washington, some people thought there would be more of a more of a response. So that is that is interesting um, on the outbound discussion in Europe. Um, uh, people are looking at this in Berlin. Uh, in Brussels, this was in the work program of the European Commission for 2023. This is something that they are uh, exploring. Um, uh, it was also uh, mentioned in uh, uh, the draft strategy, uh, China strategy of the, uh, of the of the foreign ministry, and I believe in in an economy ministry uh, paper that that was leaked as well. Uh, a month or two ago. So uh, in Berlin, they're looking at, at this too, but they're waiting to see what happens in, in Washington, how Washington, how narrow this, this uh, uh, narrow an approach the, the, the White House is going to take on this. Um, uh, the message I get is that, uh, you know, this is very, it's going to be very hard to implement uh, EU-wide. This is something which is largely in the hands of member states. Um, so it will depend on uh, Berlin, Paris, uh, the Netherlands, some big countries deciding this is something they want and, and, and moving forward. And I think there are questions about whether that will happen there. I know there is resistance to this idea uh, in some quarters in the government here in uh, Berlin. But if we're talking about simply a notification and a transparency mechanism, where companies uh, notify uh, investments in certain sectors uh, without uh, sort of a blocking mechanism attached to that. Uh, I don't think it's out of the question that we would get, we, you know, we we could get something in Europe, but I think it's going to be a tough, uh, a tough discussion. And, and, and there are people who oppose that. Nico, I don't know if you want to weigh in on maybe how the discussion about outbound investment screening mechanisms in the United States, kind of the flurry of legislation that proposed these, but it didn't wind up in the final text. How is that being perceived in Beijing? Look, uh, I, I honestly don't um, think that we have uh, proper evidence on that. I haven't seen in the accessible wider academic debates a you know, significant stream of work on this. Um, it, it's probably packaged um, uh, into, you know, the narrative that um, the U.S. is basically changing its doctrine with regard to technology controls and it's doing everything to hold China down and trying to contain China. But beyond that, I don't see a major um, debate um, uh, that is specific to the outbound investments and um, screening. There's an element of, I think, um, pressure that might be created through such debates with regard to, you know, specific issues that are related to capital market um, uh, interlinkages. So the question, uh, to what extent um, Chinese firms can be listed under which conditions, etc., where China might be willing them to, uh, you know, um, go in for a few more compromises, maybe that they would have. Um, but um, 
it's also quite interesting to see, right, the debate in, in, in Europe and the debate in the United States about some outbound um, investment screening is quite different in the way how it is framed. At least Europeans understand that in the United States, it's largely about you know capital flows, um, portfolio flows, etc. In the in Europe, in the European context, I think the question here that um, would drive business leaders um, quite um, uh, active uh, is um, when it hits industrial investments. And as Noah, I think, differentiated very clearly, um, there might be a tolerance for a certain level of transparency, um, maybe even the idea of stress tests, et cetera. But the capacity of the firm or whatever government to interfere with these decisions in a negative way, um, so not just withdrawing incentives for them, I think that's a that's a pretty big um, step that uh, would receive a lot of pushback, maybe on a level that we haven't seen it yet. So we're quite far away from that in Europe, I think, at this point. I wanted to pull on the thread about the October 7th U.S. export controls on AI chips to China, since you both mentioned it. Um, this has seemed to raise a broader question in the United States about exactly how far the United States is willing to go in decoupling with China. You know, we saw initially um, the policy of the United States being we're going to keep China one to two steps back in technological development. Now, you know, the doctrine seems to be let's keep them as far back as possible. So, you know, I'm curious how you're thinking about this in Europe. What is the view from Europe on this question about decoupling? You know, how has this issue on um, controls on AI chips played into the greater transatlantic relationship as well? Um, I, will, I will go ahead uh, and, and answer that. Uh, I think you know there isn't there isn't a great deal of appetite for the the concept of decoupling a far reaching sort of uh, dis economic disengagement uh, uh technological decoupling i mean i don't think the the biden administration uses the term uh decoupling this is a term that that lives on uh from the trump administration and and we kind of bandy it about and and everybody has a different view on what it means um uh, and and i think it's it's it has been used as a bit of a straw man uh by some politicians in europe uh i i don't think the question is uh, do we want decoupling or don't we some form of decoupling is happening uh the question is where how far do we go uh and that debate is is alive and well in in europe um it's uh, at the center of uh, the debate in Berlin over a new China strategy. Um, uh, the terms that that uh, I think people prefer to use in Europe are uh, diversification and and resilience. Have I seen um, the French? Have I seen the French say de-risking? Is that the, a new turn of phrase? I did see de-risking, I think, just in the past week. So maybe that's that's the new term that we're going to be using. <laughs> we'll have to see how that if that sticks. Um, so this this is this is a debate that 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 is happening uh, here in Europe. But I don't think, and and I'm curious if if Miko agrees, uh, that uh, Europe has really. Uh, European governments or even the European uh, Commission has really gotten their heads around uh, these issues, especially in the in the realm of uh, technology, uh, uh, as the U.S. has. Um, I think 
what I've heard is the the export controls that were announced uh, at the beginning of October in in, in Washington. No, no, no European government or no one in Brussels could have could have produced that that paper. Um, so it's a resources issue. Uh, it's also an issue of political will. Uh, I don't think we have uh, uh, politicians in prominent positions telling uh, the technocrats uh, to uh, get their heads around these issues. So Europe is in uh, reactive mode. Uh, this is this is uh, a bit of a problem. I think in order for Europe to uh, speak at eye level with the U.S. Uh, and to be able to push back uh, uh, against certain measures that the U.S. is is pursuing, uh, Europe's going to have to European governments and 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 the and uh, EU institutions are going to have to invest more resources in getting their heads around these these very complex te technology issues um, from AI to quantum uh, and and uh, on down the line. So I think economic security is going to be a very big uh, theme this year, uh, forced to a certain extent upon Europe by the United States with the export controls, outbound investment screening, et cetera. Uh, uh, so it's going to be interesting to see uh, how uh, how European governments uh, respond to that. But I think the debate is coming to Europe. There's no doubt about that. Nico, I want you to weigh in, but Noah, I, I know we have you for like three more minutes. Um, and so before you go, well, first of all, I want to say if people aren't um, subscribed to your um, watching China in Europe, they should. Um, but before you go, because you're sitting in Berlin, I wanted to ask you about your expectations for um, Germany's China strategy. I think I saw that the um, new uh, Chinese ambassador to Berlin had some choice words, I think, about that strategy based on the media leaks uh, over that document. But but what should we expect? What do you what, what do you think is coming out? Yeah, well, thanks for the pitch, Andrea. I need all the help I can get. Um, and sorry that I have to run off early. Um, I think uh, we're in the middle of uh, a very interesting process here. Uh, uh, Germany is developing, a, a coming out with its first national security strategy uh, in the coming months. And uh, after that, we're gonna get a, a China strategy. Um, uh, uh, I think we, we've, we've had a few, we've had a leaked draft of the China strategy, which is being written in the foreign ministry. There is now uh, uh, negotiations going on between the various parts of the, the, the German government uh, on uh, what this strategy is gonna look like in the end. Uh, I, I don't think we're gonna see brand new um, uh, measures here. Uh, I don't think it's going to mean uh, a, a major, uh, the strategy itself is not going to bring about a major shift, but I think it is a helpful process uh, in terms of uh, bringing some clarity uh, to parts of the German government, um, different ministries about uh, what the policy is. I think in, in, in past years, there were there was uh, there was some confusion, um, so it's good to have some guidelines from the from from uh, from the center. Um, uh, I think uh, I think we're going to see. Um, uh, I think in Europe, uh, it it is important 
for uh, for Germany to sort of write down on paper uh, what uh, what it's been debating for the past uh, few years. I think I don't think we're gonna we're gonna see this strategy sort of change the 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 direction of the debate in Europe by any means, but I think it will be helpful for other European uh, countries to, to have uh, a, a strategy from Germany, the country which uh, I think we all acknowledge is, is the most important country in Europe when it comes to China, has the closest economic relationship with China. If, if Germany points uh, in, in, a, in a certain direction, then uh, I think uh, Europe is, is, is likely to follow. So I think it's a helpful process. Uh, we don't know where it's going to end. There are differences between the chancellery and the, and, and the foreign ministry uh, and economy ministry, which are both led by the Greens. Um, so uh, hopefully we'll get a strategy at some point. Uh, there have been some delays, um, uh, but I think, uh, uh, I, I think it will be helpful for Europe once it's out. Wonderful. All right. Thank you, Noah. And we'll we'll do it again soon. Um, Miko, over to you. I don't like would love to have you weigh in on both of those. Um, Krista, do you want to reframe your um, decoupling question? Yeah, sure. Thanks. So I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on how the United States's October 7th export controls on AI chips to China was perceived in Europe. I mean, I think it really has revived these questions about decoupling and how far is too far. What's the view from Europe on this? Were these perceived as a bridge too far in you know, the United States's decoupling, move away um, from China? Look, I mean, first of all, I don't think we have fully digested the scope of these measures and where, where this is going. But I think um, for those who have the capacity to think about it, um, and there's other issues going on in Europe at the moment, um, it, there's a recognition that this is a um, fundamental change in the in the overarching approach, and you know, Jake Sullivan is saying it quite directly. So, um, but then there's a a sentiment that this is certainly now a new level of the expression of the long-term technological um, competition that the U.S. and China find themselves in, and that the U.S. is putting measures measures in place that. You know, resemble, um, I think, um, elements of techno nationalism um, in the United States uh, to some extent. Um, so it's a new era. Um, and uh, unfortunately, I think we should say uh, all of this has been now packaged um, with other developments, um, and specifically the Inflation Reduction Act and the implications that has for Europeans. So um, it is now being framed as basically here's a set of US measures that um, essentially are about self-strengthening of the United States um, and um, that there are costs um, for Europeans um, with these measures that are not necessarily fully recognized in Washington, or even if they're recognized, they're being at least tolerated and taken um, as uh, something that is required. So um, I don't think we look at these expert control measures at this point individually, um, but rather at the overall tensions that have emerged uh, in the transatlantic relationship in, in terms of the degrees of our willingness um, to fundamentally reshape economic relations with China. And in principle, I think um, the question that is on the table is, is what, what's the future degree of our innovation entanglement with um, China? And um, overall, I would um, assess that in Europe, the premises um, on which we will answer that question are quite different from the ones that the United States um, is pursuing 
And now, obviously, um, Sullivan and others are talking about specific um, um, measures that, that follow a principle of small yard high fences. I don't think that Europeans would necessarily buy into that as being um, the end of the story, but that we are looking at something that is on a downward trajectory and where Europeans will take um, a different stance on some of these measures. Yeah, that's it's so helpful to hear that perspective. Um, I guess one thing at the top of my mind, and this is a little bit of a, sh a shift or a segue, but um, you know, there's a lot of discussion now about what China's reopening will mean um, for the rest of the world. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on how how Europeans are thinking about that or what you expect the implications of China's reopening to be in Europe. Very important question, uh, because indeed, I mean, there's a potential that this reopening, not immediately, but when it's, um, you know, when we're past this period of of turbulence that we're currently seeing in China, um, that it you know will create new incentives, new actor constellations that um, try to you know, secure the benefits that emerge from that opening, uh, more diplomatic context, etc. So I think a different China story can emerge from that. It's all conditional on the extent to which we we see elements of a course correction in China and not just tactical adjustment to a very stressful um, current situation. And um, Europeans, I mean, we've talked about the trauma offensive at the outset of this conversation. I think there's a, there's a potential of that actually having an impact. Um, so hard to predict um, specifically because we don't know exactly where China is going, um, but it, it will provide certainly an uptick, I think, in the willingness uh, and the presence of more China optimist stories that you will listen to in, in, in Europe. One actor we've not spent a ton of time on today is the business community. Um, we had a question from a listener about, are you seeing any signs that the business community in Europe is waking up to the threat China poses? And then in what ways have you witnessed the business community's posture towards China shape policy at the EU or in other European capitals? In very general terms, um, most European business actors and associations wouldn't use the term threat to start with, right? Um, and um, But would rather look at long-term competitive challenges or competitiveness or fair competition reciprocity challenges, etc., as a new dimension of their conversation about China. Um, I don't think that um, a China threat is the dominant frame at all. And it's a very diversified picture with regard to the, the responses that you get really depending on the industrial sector you're looking at, the size of the company, the, the home country of the company. So it's hard to generalize, but um, maybe a few general directions. Um, clearly, the past three years have made a big difference uh, in terms of um, the embedded optimism about the trajectory of China, because it was so hard um, to have access um, to get your engineers over there. So flights were the core issue of concern, not geopolitics, right? Um, getting on board of a plane to get to China to get your, to organize your investments there. Um, and then the politicization of business, the tensions, obviously, and geopolitics on top of that. Um, so we have a sense of um, fatigue, um, I think, with regard to China that has emerged over the past three years. And that is true for probably all European business. At the same time, 2021 um, 
was a fantastic year for most business, um, European business in China. 2022 was terrible because of the lockdowns and, and the uh, COVID pandemic challenges. Now everyone is hoping to come back to a better 2023. So if 2021 was the best year that many European businesses had in China, then 2023 was the low point. If we end up somewhere in the middle, you're probably there where the overall sentiment is um, as we move forward. So mixed picture, the overall trend is one of deterioration, but I think 2023 will be an uptick and uh, most companies will probably reconsider their concerns that they had and where they have started to think more about diversification, et cetera. Okay, continue this trend of um, getting out your crystal ball and predicting into 2023. Um, what what do you expect, in, especially in the transatlantic approach to China? Do you expect that we're going to see more convergence or do you think we'll see greater friction um, between the two sides on, on China? Well, that depends on the Biden administration making concessions to the Europeans with regard to our access to IRA funding. <laughs> so yes, that seems aspect. to sit at the heart of many, many things, doesn't it? <laughs> at least it's a front and center in the in the conversation. I think we, we've seen this a year, of, and probably even two years of convergence um, between Europe and the capitals in Europe and, and Washington. And now is a year where this convergence has to prove itself. There's a lot of damage control that is required. Um, the institutional building exercise that has happened with regard to TTC, Trade and Technology Council, also the, the new efforts um, in, in NATO frameworks, the EU, China, EU US dialogue on China, etc. All of that is now required to not be just about you know good weather um, talk, but rather make a difference in, in, in pretty tough times. So I, I think it's not going to be an easy year for transatlantic um, China policy coordination. There's a great deal of willingness, but um, the capacity of governments, bureaucrats to, um, you know, do damage control and convergence at the same time is, is limited. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm looking at a challenging year in 2023 for, for making concrete progress. At the same time, and it's a bit contradictory, I know um, quite a few things have been put in place. So it would be about you know, harvesting um, and building on that uh, and continuing to build our trust. And as I said, um, we need to make sure that the things um, that are currently creating tensions um, don't blow out of proportion and that they don't damage the broader agenda that has been achieved so far. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it is a little bit of a mixed picture. I mean, it is, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand. But do, do you see any low-hanging fruit Um I either, you know, like you mentioned, PTC laying some of the groundwork for this, um, you know, I, some of the other focal points of U.S.-Europe dialogue on China. Is there any low-hanging fruit? Like, is there is there any um, good news on the horizon of things that you expect we might be able to coordinate on? Yes, I think so. And I, I think um, the, the beauty of that is they, they require a transatlantic core but their success really depends on other like-minded partners um, being part of that story. So I think the G7 framework uh, under the leadership of Japan, the conversation that we're going to have about economic security, despite all the challenges that we've outlined, is actually something where some harvesting can be done, right? Um, we, we see that convergence, um, um, you know, even if we don't agree on the future scope of output investment screening, I think there's a growing um, convergence on investment screening for inbound investments. Um, 
I, I, despite the fact that we are um, probably not happy about the eventual scope of export controls and we will have a lot of differences there, I think there is a recognition that specifically for dual use and um, you know military use purposes, we don't have a full set of multilateral controls in place that will help us navigate the future with China. And and then maybe more specifically on on the region and the general, I think understanding that this is not just about the bilateral or trilateral relationship, um, but rather that we have to work both with so-called global south countries and we have a joint interest in in making sure that um, like-minded partners in the region, specifically Japan, South Korea, Australia. Um, I think that's an arena of convergence too, because everyone in Washington capitals in Europe sees that as, as where we really make a difference in supporting and working and learning honestly from these countries in how they deal with um, their entanglements with China. So uh, I'm still an optimist, but it's not it's not going to be an easy year. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there, there are some... Um bright points or uh, reasons for optimism going into the year. But as you mentioned, IRA the is the kind of flashpoint, but lots of other small challenges all across the board. But um, with that, Miko, um, I want to thank you for joining us. Um, this has been a hugely um, useful uh, in conversation. So just appreciate you taking the time to join us and Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to everyone and look forward um, to um, successful coordination on, on China related uh, cheers. Yeah. Here's <laughs> that. Thanks, Miko. Thanks, Absolutely. Miko. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.